This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Subscribe to the Astros podcast. Joined by Justin Verlander getting the ball on opening day. Steve Sparks here, and I'm with Lance McCuller. Tons of interviews. Robert Ford joined by Michael Brantley. Alex Bregman. Carlos Correa returning to the lineup today. Highlights. That is line in the right field, and that's going to get down for a base hit. High and deep, and it's gone. A grand slam. Follow your favorite team. Subscribe to the Astros podcast. We definitely love playing in front of our fans in Minute Park. <laughs> For the H. They never said it would be easy. This is the Houston Astros Radio Network. I'm Steve Sparks with the Houston Astros, and I'm pleased to be joined by Jeff Blum. Blummer, thanks for joining me today. Hey, you know what? I looked through my schedule and found out I had some time to give, and now here I am on with you again, and I greatly appreciate the opportunity, really? man, to kill some time. So you got a little time these days, huh? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. In, be- <laughs> in between, uh, you know, washing my hands for as long as I possibly can, and I can only clean out the garage in my closet so many times before I got to find something else to do. Hey, what's the over-under right now on hand washing? Is it oh, more man. or less than 22 times oh, I'm taking day? the... Uh, I'm taking the over. Well, it depends too. You know, if, if we actually have to make a, a, a an adventure to the local supermarket, then it might be increased. But I'd say on yeah. average, yeah, man. If I touch a wow. doorknob, I'm washing. You know what? I have not been to a grocery store since I've come back from spring training. Can you believe that? Well, you're spoiled though, man. Yeah, I guess I am spoiled. I, I am that. <laughs> but uh, my wife is just like taking over that duty. She goes, what do you need from the grocery store? And probably doesn't go well, more than once every four days. I don't want to get into specifics, but I do understand why you would not be making too many ventures outside the house, taking care of yourself and making yeah. sure that everything is okay yeah. with you. So I appreciate the fact that uh, your wife, Michelle, is doing a great <laughs> job of taking care of you. She is a hero. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you say washing your hands when you say 20 times a day, more than once an hour? Because I'm probably averaging almost once an hour. Is that, yeah, is that not you, enough? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's become habitual or if I've just become hyper paranoid about situations. But I mean, if, you know, yeah. before I get, after I get something out of the fridge or after I prepare food or before I prepare food, I'm washing my hands. If I yeah. go outside oh, yeah. and come back inside, I'm washing my hands. If I, Right. You know, it, it, and then all the other normal times that you'd normally wash your hands, you add on to that. But uh, I've been a little extra paranoid about uh, the, the washing of the hands. I can attest to the fact that my wife has been going around wiping down door handles, especially, you know, after we come back from, you know, a trip to the uh, to Costco or the supermarket or the girls come yeah. in from outside after a run around the lake. You know, she's definitely yeah. in wipe down mode. She's been very good about that. What have you been doing about working out and stuff like that? exercising. You know what? We're really lucky. We moved into the, a new house in uh, September of 2019, and it's actually right across the street in, our, in our front of our house is a is a huge man-made lake, and there's about a three-mile track around it. So, you know, I'm sure we'll just 
topic will come up later in the podcast, but a three mile you know, walk run is pretty sufficient <laughs> to try and keep me in shape. And uh, yeah. I, I have done that, but uh, I'll, I'll just let you know that my minute per mile is nowhere near, you know, Olympic form. And I am more on the leisurely side at about 10 to 12 minutes per mile, but uh, that's how I'm getting the cardio in. And then obviously yeah. all the body weight and uh, I have a couple of weights inside the house, but I'm on the Herschel Walker workout plan where it's a lot of sit-ups and a lot of push-ups. That was just Herschel Walker's deal is just set up some push-ups, but he was sculpted like a, like a, a Greek a god man. Uh, to begin with, right? Yeah. Uh, any, watching anything uh, cool on TV right now? <clears throat> we are getting into a show on I think it's Amazon Prime. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think, it, but I know it's called The Man in the High Castle, and it's kind of a okay. spin on if World War II had ended with the Germans and Japanese winning the war and the Americans not. So, it's been kind of interesting, historical. It's a timepiece, but it's uh, kind of interesting how they've spun it in a different direction. So it's kind of, kind of odd all at the same time. Well, I don't know how you do it, but you got four girls. Are they, they keeping their sanity right now? Yes. For the most part, they've been fantastic. School has helped out quite a bit with the, uh, you know, occupying some of their time. They're doing a very good job of reading books and staying up on their studies, which is huge. And uh, they actually, you know, they play volleyball in high school. So the high school coach has been very good about separating these girls into, you know, groups of about five or six. So every once uh -huh. in a while, I'll hear upstairs, I'll hear the, you know, just, it sounds like a <laughs> sounds like a herd of cattle running through the upstairs and it turns out that the girls are actually on zoom workouts with everybody in their small little volleyball group and they'll be doing their workouts no in their rooms or upstairs yeah like workouts like, like as far as like strengthening and stuff like that or technique and doing stuff with the volleyball um it's a little bit of body weight uh you know what, what's fortunate for me is i've got about two-thirds of a volleyball team in my house as it is so they can go out yeah and uh and practice with each other as far as you know bump set spike and get some of the footwork done but when they get on these Zoom workouts, the coach, I believe, actually sends them an email with a list of, you know, some body weight exercises that they can do and some mobility moves that they can make within the house. And they all get on Zoom and they just mm -hmm. kind of encourage each other and get the workout done and they get extra credit for it. And it's it's a pretty cool setup. That's cool. All right. Um, one of your teammates is going to join us today. And I would have to say among any guys uh, that I have not gotten a chance to play with, and I've gotten to know him very well through the years, but uh, Lance Berkman's going to join us today. He had to be a great, funny teammate, was, was he not? No, he was one of the best. And what was great about Lance is that we were both right around that same age. And he was kind of that mm -hmm. conduit for me between some of the younger guys to the older guys. And uh, we, we pretty much gravitated towards each other, both being switch hitters, both being the same oh, yeah. age and uh, trying to go out there and compete. So we got along famously. And with the best part about Lance is he's such a good storyteller, but at the same time, having yeah. Jeff Bagwell in the, our booth, he also lends himself to having good stories told about him. So he, he is the perfect guest for a podcast like this. As far as somebody who can laugh at themselves, I don't know many other baseball players uh, like Lance who's able to laugh at themselves, and I love it about him. Yeah, I don't think I've ever met a guy that's been more, I mean, it, it, I don't know if it's, it's not humbleness or a humility. It's just this It's just self-effacing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. because 
he, he almost enjoys telling stories about his his mishaps and his successes, yeah. you know, in a roundabout way. It's not, oh, I went out there and got the big hit because of this. It's, you know, it's it's how he gets to that point is what is most entertaining right. about that. But he he remembers so much and the recall is so good. And obviously his vernacular and the way he uses words is, is super special. And here we are on the Astro Pod. We have the privilege of having a ex-teammate of mine and also a current teammate, if you take it to the extent that he is doing some broadcasting now, we are, lucky to have Lance Berkman on the Astropod. Lance, how have things been? Well, you know, pretty laid back, pretty uh, quiet with all the quarantine stuff. So uh, everybody in our family is healthy, thank the Lord, and we can't complain about that, but just ready to get back to normal and get, get people in the country back on their feet. I agree with you on that, and it has been kind of tough. Has there been anything that you have put an emphasis on on doing while you've been quarantined? Because I know you, like me, are swimming in the estrogen ocean. Have you had any time to yourself? <laughs> yeah, not very much. But uh, yeah, I, I generally practice social distancing in my regular life when, <laughs> whenever it's not Corona. So this is not that much different from what I normally do. And it's kind of brought us back to a more primitive way of life, kind of like when we were growing up. Uh, have you found yourself uh, playing cards a little bit more or having more conversations, dinners at the table, things like that? Oh, yeah. That's what's been great about it is just the I mean, we play board games and do stuff like you said that we hadn't done since the since the 80s. So um, before the advent of all the electronics and uh, it's been it's been great to have uh, all the family back together. My oldest daughter was a freshman at, in college at OU and Norman and to have her back home on a full-time basis has been great. So the can't complain about the family time. Now, how do you handle, I mean, devices in the family are always an issue for a parent. How have you handled or how often are your girls on the phone now that uh, we're in this pandemic stage? Well, we try to monitor it and limit it. Uh, fortunately, they, they're pretty busy with school. You know, they're still having to do a lot of uh, class stuff, even though it's online. So um, just, you know, it's it's hard whenever there's a lot of downtime and there's not a whole lot going on and uh, not much to do. And it's a good way for them to stay connected with their friends, but uh, try to, to limit it to a dull roar anyway. We've talked about there's a few less distractions now, Lance. What was life like for you in New Braunfels growing up? Uh, it was it was great. It had to be, right? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, you know, I spent a good part of my childhood in Austin, um, right there in southwest Austin. But for mm -hmm. sure, just... Uh, you know, we all, the three of us are old enough to know that it was simpler times for sure. And uh, the uh -huh. world was was less complicated in many ways. And um, I don't know if that was reality or just our perspective, but it, it certainly seemed that way. And we I know for sure that technology didn't play as big a role in our lives as it does now. So uh, it's kind of a challenge uh, when you're parenting to try to figure out, okay, you know, where's the balance? Uh, because it's not something that we grew up with, uh, but it's definitely very prevalent in, in our kids' lives. And you got firsthand knowledge when you were coaching uh, high school baseball at Second Baptist, the social media from those players. What did you learn and how did you handle that with your players? Well, one thing I learned is, I, is I'm not sure that there's many positive things about it. It seems like that uh, a lot of there, there's a lot of negative things that come from social media, it seems to accentuate and exacerbate negative aspects of, of the of the human creature, you know, and the, by that, I mean, you know, there's a lot of self-focus, there's a lot of co competition for a pecking order. 
And social media is just another way where a lot of kids get excluded. You know, they they get caught up in, well, did somebody like my picture? Are they liking my posts? And it can really have a severe negative impact on their on their self-esteem if they're not getting enough thumbs up on, on a picture they post. So I, I think a lot in a lot of ways it's silly um, and it and it definitely uh, has its a tendency to make people self-focused instead of others focused. And uh, I think I think that's a negative thing, especially for kids. All right. Speaking of exclusivity, you and I are an exclusive club because we both switch hit. And I love always asking you, how did you become a switch hitter? Well, my dad pretty much forced me to do it uh, when I was <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid. So I I was a natural right-handed swinger, and uh, my my dad noticed that I. This is kind of crazy. This shows that my dad's a little bit of a psycho for, from a baseball standpoint. Uh, but he noticed that I would when I would get done with my bottle in my crib that I would throw it out left-handed. Like <laughs> Oh man, this is going way back. Yeah. So, so he, he knew I was a left-handed thrower and he figured I should be able to hit left-handed as well. So, I mean, literally from the time I could walk, he made me switch hit. And that's kind of what I've done my whole life. You'd think, you'd think I'd be a little bit better right-handed than I was. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. No, and I'm with you in that sense. Once I got to the big leagues, and I want you to explain that a little bit for everybody maybe who has a kid who's trying to switch hit or maybe the reasoning by, you know, behind why, if you have the ability to switch hit, why not do it kind of thing. But I'm with you in the sense that I was a natural right-handed hitter, picked up switch hitting, and it obviously helped uh, maintain my career in the big leagues being able to hit left-handed. But, uh, you know, what do you think, and I'm a much better left-handed hitter than I am right-handed, or what do you attribute that fact to at the big league level well i think a lot of it has to do with just the reps that you get you know and you're you're what is it, probably 80 percent of the time at the minimum you're facing a, a right-handed pitcher so you're hitting left-handed and um i think just over the course of years and repetitions uh you just you get better and um for me i, I know for you it's different because you're a right-handed thrower for me as a left-handed thrower it just seemed to make sense, like the way I would swing. I would think about throwing the bat at the ball, uh, and it was very it, like it made sense with my brain because I'm like you know my left hand is it'd be just like I was turning a double play in the batter's box. You know, you feel that your hand would go back, and then it would you know you just throw the bat just like you do when you throw a ball. So uh, I think that was one reason I was better left-handed and had a better feel for my hands and the swing left-handed than I did right-handed. And so I think it's just that and, and the repetitions. Among guys that I've ever hung out with that, that, that played baseball, you're probably the best storyteller I've, I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's a lot of pressure. Uh. It's uh, the attention to detail you have compared to a lot of people. And, and I don't think that you're exaggerating too much, but it's just funny the way you tell some stories. But there's one story about Coach Graham at Rice uh, when you guys were going to do a conditioning test, do you remember that story? That I would love for you to tell that one. Oh yeah, yeah the the infamous blue dart story. That's what my brother-in-law calls it. Yeah. And well, I mean, basically, Coach Graham, who is a was, I mean, is I guess you say was because he's not coaching anymore, but tremendous coach. So I mean, no disrespect when I say this. He but he was always he would always get on a a kick of some kind, then that would be like that year's key to success. So as an example, one year it would be, 
well, we're going to be the strongest team in the nation from our wrist to our elbow, like forearm strength. <laughs> that's the focus. No, no kidding. And then, so this this one particular year, for whatever reason, he he decided that well, we're gonna like we're, we're gonna we're gonna be a great we're gonna be in great condition and. A test of that is going to be uh, a three-mile run, and and you have to run three miles in 21 minutes or less, which is a pretty good clip. I mean, that's good that is seven-minute miles. Yeah, and for so, and I and I don't know that the loop around Memorial Park is quite uh, three miles, but it's it's right at it, you know. And so that was our deal. Like you have to run around Memorial Park in 21 minutes or less, and then. The, the thing about it was if you didn't make it the first time, you had to run it every other day until you did make it. So his theory was you're either going to come into the fall in shape or yeah. you were going to get in shape by the time the fall was over with. And so my my roommates, I had uh, three roommates, and they were very stressed out about this. And we were, you know, it was, it was going to be run right when we came back from our summer break. So I spent the whole summer... Uh, playing in the Jayhawk League in Kansas and did not run a single step unless it was in the game, you know. <laughs> and I was talking to my roommates, and they're, like, training for this thing like they're, you know, <laughs> triathletes. So we, to make a real long story short, we show up, and my plan was I was going to horse around the first time and just, you know, basically walk the thing. And then I was going to get one of my buddies who made it the second time I had to run it. I was going to run away from Coach Graham around the corner and out of sight. And then I was going to have him pick me up in a truck and drive me <laughs> around the loop and drop me off like so I could make the time and not have to run it. And you can so, spray yourself off like you were sweating. Yeah. So I show like so the the day of the the first conditioning test it, we had to be there at seven o'clock, which that's really early for anybody, but especially when you're in college. So I, I, I woke up. My roommates were out of the out of the house at like six. You know, they wanted to get there and warm up. They ate a good breakfast, whole deal. I woke up at like <laughs> six thirty, and you know, it takes a good twenty minutes to get there. I wolf down a bowl of Rice Krispies, jump in my truck, and I drive over. <laughs> and I pull up. As I'm pulling up. The team is lined up at the starting line, and I'm pulling up, and I park my truck illegally on the shoulder of the road and jump out and, like, throw my keys to the assistant coach and go straight to the line. And I've got a, a royal blue T-shirt, a royal blue pair of shorts, shoes with no socks, and a royal blue headband. And Coach Graham, <laughs> coach Graham was like, Berkman, get on the line. You're late. And I was like, Coach, it's not seven yet. And, I mean, literally <laughs> – as soon as I said that, it was like seven o'clock and then he's like, go. And so we take off. And I mean, I took off on a dead sprint and I, I started, you know, calling back over my shoulder. I'll see you, you know, I'll see you chumps at the finish line, blue dart, you know, I'm going to win this thing, eat my dust. So I'm just messing with the whole team and coach Graham's, you can tell he's not happy. So, I mean, I, I'm, I bolt and I don't know what happened, but I, for some reason, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to see how long I can keep up this pace because I'm running pretty well flat out. And before you know it, I'd run like a half a mile and I still felt really good. And then the next thing, you know, I'd, I'd look down and I'd gotten to the mile marker and I ran that first mile in, in like sub six. It was like 550 something. I mean, I was absolutely oh smoking. And to this day, <laughs> This is the one athletic feat that I cannot explain. It's just like it was just my day. 
So, <laughs> but, the, but when I got to the two mile mark, I, I had, I was way out in front of everybody. But at that point I hit the wall, like all my, you know, not running had caught up to me. Lactic so, acid was all it, in you. Oh, it was just brutal. And I turned around yeah. and look and way, way, way in the distance was the leader of the pack. This uh, Mario Ramos left-handed pitcher actually pitched the big leagues a little bit with the Rangers. He yeah. was the, the front runner of the pack. And I could just barely see him. And I was like, I'm not going to let that sucker beat me. So I like I ran, walked, and he finally did catch me about 300 yards from the finish line. And I <laughs> I ended up running with him. You know, I didn't let him beat me. We tied uh, for the for the win. And as soon as I crossed the finish line, Coach Graham starts yelling, Berkman, you cheated. You cut across the golf course. And as I've I, I, crossed the finish line, went down to all fours, and I started puking my Rice Krispies everywhere. I puked all over the track. <laughs> and he said, oh, <laughs> maybe you didn't cheat. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, roll, I literally rolled away, you know, to let other people use the track. And I laid there in the grass for about two hours. Like, everybody had finished. Everybody was gone. I just laid there. And for the rest of the day, I mean, I was I was spent. So, But, but I made it. And the next day in practice, Coach Graham was like, I hope everybody saw the way Berkman ran that that run. That's true heart. You know, that's what we need to win this year. And I didn't oh want to come like, Coach, you know, I really had planned on cheating you, but it was just by dint of circumstance <laughs> that, that I ran that thing for real. So. so did he ever hear the real story about it later? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he knew that at, at – you know, at a, when I felt like it was safe, enough time had passed, we talked about it. And I told him, I said, Coach, I was going to get somebody to pick me up and drive me around. But I just decided to, you know, I felt, I felt so good. I said, what the heck? I, I think I could do this thing. So all I, can, all I can say about that is there is no way, number one, that you're a freshman because you wouldn't have had the guts to be able to, to even attempt that. But your, your relationship with Coach Graham, uh, you, you've talked about how much more mentally tough he made you. But uh, there was a really good give and take with you too, wasn't there? Oh, man, yeah. Coach is, uh, you know, I, I credit two people for the most part with, you know, I'm sure I'm leaving some people out, but the two people that were, in my opinion, the most fundamental in me, you know, developing as a baseball player were my dad and coach Graham. I mean, he just had a, a huge impact on, on me and my career. And, um, you know, just, he's, he's great. I, I wouldn't have wanted to play for anybody else. That's outstanding stuff. And you can only get it right here on the Astro pod. We have got Astro legend Lance Berkman on with Steve Sparks and myself, Jeff Blum, having a great time telling stories. And you had a phenomenal career. And now you have moved a little bit into the broadcast booth, picking up some games. I want to talk a little bit about the, the transition from the field to the booth a little bit. I know that you did do some high school coaching, and now you are getting a chance to call some games. Are you enjoying being in the booth? or did you enjoy being in the booth? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it, it, obviously, uh, big shoes to fill because you're not there. Uh, so I've got <laughs> I've to do the best I can. But uh, it's fun. Like, it, you know, I, I enjoy uh, watching the game and kind of, you know, picking some of the intricacies, the little nuances that really make the game go. And, and I enjoy – I feel like I'm kind of a teacher at heart, so I enjoy explaining those things. Um, hopefully in a way that people can understand uh, because baseball is a game that is much more interesting when you understand all the all the little nuances than I always say it's like you know it's like watching two people play chess if you if you don't know 
the game at all, if you just have a rudimentary understanding of how the pieces move, it's like watching paint dry to watch two guys play chess. But if you have a, a, a detailed knowledge of the strategy and all the things that are going on sort of in the guy's mind and behind the scenes, it's really fascinating. And baseball is the same way. You know, you sit there and if you don't really understand what you're, what you're looking at, it's not an action-driven sport like football or basketball. It's a strategy and little cat-mouse game-driven sport. And when you can communicate that effectively to the audience, I think they get a lot more enjoyment out of watching a game on TV. So uh, I've enjoyed that aspect of it, being able to look at the game, you know, through the, the eyes of experience and be able to try to explain what I'm seeing to, you know, to the audience. And, and um, it was it was a lot of fun. So hopefully I get to do a few more of those in the, in the future, although I'm certainly not looking to, you know, make it a, a full time gig. <laughs> Behind the scenes, I keep angling for a game where we actually have myself, you, and Baggy in the booth because I th there's feedback has been so good with both of you in the booth. I can only imagine having all three of us in the booth uh, telling some stories and having a good time would be that much better. Uh, granted, it might distract from the game a little bit, but uh, I, selfishly, I would thoroughly enjoy it. And uh, I want you to give me your best Bagwell story since we're in the storytelling process right here. Uh, what have you got yeah. on Baggy that I could use against him possibly? Huh. Well, Bagwell uh, is like a, you know, you played with him. He's, he's almost like an older brother to, to those of us that were a little bit younger than him. But, you know, and when you're, when you're a young player, you're really just kind of, you know, anything that a veteran guy would say to you, especially a guy that's that was Bagwell's caliber of player, you just kind of hang on that, and you're, you know, when you're when you're a young player and you're trying to establish yourself, you're just hoping for that approval or that you know a word of encouragement, something from one of the veteran guys that makes you feel like you belong, and so. I was, when I first got called up to the big leagues, and of course I knew Jeff a little bit, but didn't know him like I would, would come to know him. Uh, and he was still sort of a, uh, you know, you kind of get a, a little bit uh, starstruck. Uh, even as a young player, you're like, oh my gosh, I mean, I'm in the same locker room with these guys, Jeff Bagwell, Craig Biggio, Moises Alou, yeah. I mean, all the, uh, I was kind of struggling a little bit and man, you know, got off to like a two for 21 start and I'm searching, and uh, finally, after a couple of weeks of watching me struggle, Bagwell comes over, and I'm thinking, okay, he's finally like, I'm, he's going to give me something, like he's going to explain this thing to me, like how how I can make an adjustment, or he's just about to drop some wisdom on me. <laughs> I can tell. So he puts his arm around me, and we we're walking out to the field. And he goes, you know, what would really help? And I said, what's that? And he said, you might think about hitting a few more balls on the barrel. <laughs> I said, oh, thanks a lot. You think that's what I was like? The pitching coach yelling, throw strikes. I'm trying to throw strikes. But that's what I'm trying to do, you idiot. Help me out. So anyway, that was his piece of advice. Hit the ball on the barrel. When you have those veterans like that, and you learn from them, it's hard not to become like them when you're a veteran. Do you remember when you became a veteran, how you tried to treat some of the younger guys or, uh, or did you, did you treat them all, you know, sometimes like Bagwell did? Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I tell that story on Baggy, but he was, he really truly was a great veteran player to be a young player underneath. And, and, um, you know, just watching the way that he, 
took care of business, uh, very professional on the field. He and Craig both, you know, played hurt, played all the time. And we had some great veteran guys that, uh, that treated us pretty well. Now, you had to earn your stripes, which is something that I certainly appreciate about. And I don't know, you know, I yeah. haven't been in, around the big league locker room in a while, so it may, it may or may not still be this way. But, you know, there was a period of time when you really had to prove that you belonged and you kind of had to earn your spot. And so they weren't, uh, they weren't a coddling group by any means, but they were a great group in terms of uh, demonstrating what it meant to be a, a professional baseball player. And I learned a lot from all those guys in that locker room. And, and they, they treated us with respect, but at the same time, you know, you kind of knew your place. You knew that you uh, had to keep your mouth shut and listen a lot more than, uh, than you were able to speak. So uh, I, I would tend to be that way, like, you know, as a veteran guy, um, I'd never wanted the young players to feel uncomfortable, but at the same time, I wanted them to respect the fact that they were in the major leagues. And so, uh, yeah. Bagwell was a very, he walked that fine line, I think really well, you know, he was, he was not, you were never uncomfortable around Jeff, but you also knew that you had to earn his respect. And I, and I really appreciate about that about him. Hey, you guys remember when you were in like spring training and you're playing a position and it was almost like the back of your hand. You knew where to be, where to go during the fundamentals, but you never really thought about where the other people are supposed to be. You, you kind of knew if you thought about it. I was wondering if you ran into any of that when you were coaching high school. It's like when you're teaching these guys where to be on cutoffs or anything like that, it's like, man, where does the shortstop go here? Or did you automatically know? Because I always thought the tough when I coached my son's teams. Oh, 100%. That, that, that was the, the biggest transition for me is exactly what you said. When you're, when you're a player, you're responsible for one person, and that's you. And everybody else, especially when you get to the big league level, I mean, it's just, you know, guys are on autopilot. They know exactly what to do, and everybody does their job for the most part, and um, you don't ever have to think about it. But when you go to coach, especially when you're coaching 16- to 18-year-old boys, which, by the way, in order to get them to understand something, you have to say it about – seven or eight thousand times exactly and, yep. you know and then, and then you might get a, a a glimmer of understanding to have to explain every part of the game from every position like you said sparky you you, you know it i mean you've been it's that's there the challenge in the recesses of your mind but having to to think about it and say okay yeah the second baseman is supposed to cover first base on this bump play or, <laughs> yeah. you know that, yeah. and 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 then to teach that to the kids so and to right. teach the nuances for a second baseman to be able to cheat over you know what i'm saying for sure and and uh there's that's why i think you know you have to have great assistant coaches to be a good baseball coach because you can't you can't think of everything you, the, the, it's so complex there's so much that that goes on uh, that you need, you know, two or three sets of eyes where you're like, okay, you watch this, I'll watch that. And then, you know, that's the, I really believe that the best teams have a, not just a good coach, but a great coaching staff. And uh, it's something that I came to appreciate uh, tremendously with my, the guys that were helping me out at, at second, uh, because you just, you can't see everything. Yeah, you really struggle when your pitching coach is Andy Pettit. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't have to worry about the pitchers. I'm just like, you know, you got him. I don't even – you just tell me who's available, and I'll tell you when I think he stinks and to get me another one. So. You know, that's funny. And you know what? You, you both are pretty arrogant for being, you know, these these guys who only had one position. Or I know Lance, you floated around the outfield, played a little bit of first base. But okay. if you ever need somebody who can tell you where the hell everybody needs to be, I'll be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> because, no doubt. Because that is, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I would, jack yeah, of all trades, master your... of none. That's yeah. right. If I had to pick one guy that that to play all nine positions of anybody that I ever played with, you would be it. So I, I would <laughs> I would feel comfortable running you out there pretty much anywhere. I appreciate you saying that, Lance, and I, I wish you were my manager. I might have gotten a couple more ABs and snuck a couple over the fence. Um, we got a chance to play a lot together, 0203, and then I came back for three years in 8, 9, and 10. And I haven't even had this conversation with you personally, and I hate to uh, you know, bring this up on, a, on the Astro Pod right here and maybe pick away at a scab that had healed over, but 2010 was one of the more interesting years I think I've ever seen inside a clubhouse, and more sp- specifically to the point that the, you know the the organization was in transition for the Houston Astros you know first it was Roy Oswald getting traded away i believe and then there was a really uncomfortable time when you had to you had to make the choice i believe you had to make the choice of being traded to New York as they were trying to uh, uh, turn over the roster so to speak in Houston could you give us a little insight into what actually went down in that 2010 season when eventually your tenure with the Astros was up Coming into that year, I'd, I'd had a little bit of a down year in 2009, um, and in spring training, my knee bothered me, and we were done, we were doing a drill uh, where I had to like you know feel the ground ball and then run and cover first real quick. And I remember I stepped when I when I went to cover first, I, I stepped on the base kind of funny, and my knee felt weird, or whatever. Didn't think much of it finish the workout. But that night when I went home, it's my, my knee swelled up, like, you know, where I was like, Oh gosh, you know, there's something not right. So turned out I torn my meniscus and had to have surgery it, during spring training. And it wasn't, mm-hmm. it was supposed to be kind of a minor procedure, uh, which I guess it was, or maybe I tried to rush it back. I don't know, but whatever happened, I didn't respond very well to the recovery, not like I had in the past. And uh, so as a consequence, I felt like I was a little bit diminished, got off to a bad start. You know, it's kind of the same old deal. Then you, you get into the middle part of the season. I think I was hitting like 240, had like seven homers, by far the worst year of my career. And uh, Ed Wade called me and said, hey, we want to trade you. We're trying to, like you said, turn this roster over. Um, I had a no trade clause. So I said, well, you know, there's only a few places. I don't want to just, you know, I don't want to end up in – Pittsburgh, you know, no disrespect, but <laughs> I wanted, if I was going to get traded, I wanted a chance to play for a championship. <laughs> and uh, so he called me back a few days later and said, Hey, I've got something worked out with the Yankees. Would you be willing to wa- wave your no trade to go there? And I thought, what the heck, you know, get a chance to play for the Yankees, see what that's all about, get kind of be reunited with Andy and, uh, and, and try to win a World Series. So, um, that was a tough year. It really was. And in, in, in a lot of ways, personally, it was the worst year uh, statistically I'd ever had. It was the year where I left the organization I'd been with, with for 12 years. And I honestly thought, you know, I, w- I would uh, always be an Astro. I never thought I would play anywhere else. And uh, like I yeah, say, that's kind of, it is. It's like, you've, you that's where I, you know, you figure out, hey, professional sports is mm-hmm. about, you know, making money. And, and when the, when the organization, feels like they have a better option, they're going to move on. Just like, I mean, you saw what happened with, with Brady and the Patriots uh, this year. It doesn't matter who you are. That's the greatest quarterback in the history of the game. Um, it's And, and it's, it's not like, woe is me. It's just the nature of the business. So, um, but, but it's hard sometimes as a young player to understand that. And um, yeah, that, was, that was a tough, tough thing for sure. One of the most embarrassing things, I think, Lance, for any player during the course of a game, especially on defense, is to forget how many outs there were. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, you can certainly get fined. We know that. And there's kangaroo courts and guys will get on you and everything. But you had that happen to you one time and you almost got out of it, didn't you? Well, that was kind of my specialty, actually, was forgetting how many outs there were. Uh, <laughs> That's what you got paid for. Yeah, pretty much. I got paid to drive in runs and forget how many outs there were um, on defense. But fortunately, now I will say this, in my entire big league career, many, many times I started to run off the field from the outfield when there was two outs. But it never, yeah. I never, never got it never caught. cost us a game. Like it never, you know, like you yeah. see some of these disasters where a guy will throw a ball in the stands, you know, and then, and yeah. then the dude circles the bases. <laughs> I never had anything like that. But what I did have was, uh, and of course, now I say that this particular episode could possibly have cost us the game, depending on who oh, you gosh. talk to. Uh, Andy, if you talk to Andy Pettit, he will tell you that it did, in fact, cost us the game. I don't see how it had much impact one way or the other. But <laughs> we were playing in Baltimore, and uh, I was playing first base. And the the visiting dugout is the third base dugout in Baltimore. And so um, there was apparently there was one out. I was and I was under the impression that there was two outs, but uh, there was one out, and I was holding a guy on. Uh, first base and Brian Roberts was the hitter Pettit's pitching jams him and Brian hit a ball into that Bermuda triangle you know kind of in that no man's land between first second and the pitcher's mount so mm -hmm. I knew the only chance to to get it out was I was gonna have to go get the ball which I did I dove for it caught it made a great play turned around fired it to Andy bang bang we get him out at first base and I jump up and run off the field thinking it was a third out now that was the year, 2005, I had just recently come back from ACL. So I missed the first month and a half of the season rehabbing sure. my ACL tear. And so I, was, I hadn't been back very long uh, before this episode occurred. And I get all the way off the field and I look up and I notice I'm the only one that's run off the field. And so I make eye contact with <laughs> Phil Garner, who's our manager, and he has this quizzical look on his face. And immediately I was like, oh, gosh, there's only two outs. And so as soon as I realized that, I grabbed my knee like I had tweaked it, you know, like and it, and, and it was plausible because I had because I had just dove for a ball, you know, kind of twisted funny to get back with the you know, with a throw. And so uh, the trainer who had some experience with me by this point realized that I was faking an injury to try to avoid embarrassment. Comes right out there. Yeah, yeah sexy. Like, sexy. He comes out there yeah. and was like, are you hurt or did you forget how many outs there were? <laughs> and I, and I, I said, you know me too well. I just forgot how many outs there were. And he goes, okay, well, take your time. And so we go through this whole deal, including I ran a few sprints up the third baseline just to make sure I could continue. I'm dead serious. That is ridiculous. Oh That's ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. But you, I mean, if you if you're gonna do that, you gotta go. You know, you gotta go full full out to really sell it. So, uh, you know, true champion stayed in the game. Unfortunately, <laughs> what a gamer. This whole episode took about probably. I mean, you know, like let's call it seven minutes. Seven to ten wow. minutes. <laughs> what? <laughs> Which is a long, that's that's a rain a long delay. time. It is. But, I mean, I, at, at one point, I mean, I had, you know, like an orthopedic out there doing the old ACL check. <laughs> that is stupid. <laughs> so, so the whole time, Andy's standing on the mound with Osmus, and they're like, you know, he I, apparently he got stove up because he gave up a six spot after I got back out on the field with two outs. Like oh, the next my guy gosh. hit a double, and the next guy 
guy hit another double, and then before you know it, I mean, because you iced him. Yeah, I, I, that's what he him. says. But I'm like, dude, you're a you're a major league pitcher. If you can't stand out there for seven minutes and then get somebody out, that's your fault. <laughs> So <laughs> you, you, you mentioned Phil Garner. I would have to uh, argue that Garner always had a quizzical look. Well, now that is a great point. So, but but when you played for him, you could, you were able to discern like when he was really looking at you quizzically and when it meant something else. So I, I knew that that was yeah, an authentic exactly. quizzical look. Your, your career numbers were great. We could talk about all those. But you were in four home run derbies, and I know you hit plenty of home runs. But uh, what made you want to uh, go ahead and accept the invitation to, to number one, compete in those? And do you have a story from one of those competitions? Uh, well, it's like, you know, it's one of those things where the when I was first offered um, the opportunity to do it, my initial reaction was, man, I don't know. You know, that's one of those deals where it, it's kind of a no-win situation. Because if you go up there and hit homers where you're supposed to, but if you don't, then you know it's embarrassing because oh the guy's just lobbing it in there or you can't hit a ball to the ballpark but it's it is actually a little bit more challenging uh that people give it credit for so uh but to all that to say i'm like you know i would regret if i had the opportunity to do this and 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 turned it down so i decided to go ahead and my first experience uh with the home run derby was in milwaukee in 2002 and uh I learned a lot from that because uh, one of the things that you have to do is kind of pace yourself. Of course, in the this is under the old format, which I know they've changed it up. I, I don't really even know what the rules are now, but uh, back then, you know, you had so many outs, and I think I swung at the first ten pitches and was out of there. So you have to you have to pace yourself because you get tired um, and you're swinging max effort. Um, but that experience helped me to. Um, the next the next one I did was in 2004, which was in Houston, and that was one of the highlights of my career in terms of experiences uh, because I was in front of the home crowd and I got to the finals against Miguel Tejada, and we were you know there were I hit a bunch of home runs in that derby, and you know the place was going absolutely bananas every time I'd hit one, and I think the balls they talk about juiced balls. I think those balls were juiced because they were going a long way and it was just a lot of fun and um, got my, you know, my family was there to experience it with me. So that was for sure. One of the highlights of, of my playing career was that 2004 home run derby. You guys know how Minute Maid Park gets when, when the fans are really into it and, and everybody's yelling at the same time. It's one of the, to me, it's, it probably has as much or more energy than any place I've ever been in. Uh, and it's certainly as loud as any place. And, and that's what it was like that night. And to be sort of the focus of that and to carry the hopes uh, of the of the city, so to speak, and then ultimately yep. be crushed in the finals. But <laughs> but to feel like that, you know, you had all 40,000 people rooting for you is a yeah, pretty cool experience. Okay. So it's the 20th anniversary of Minute Maid Park. And gotcha. you said that that was uh, was a pretty good memory you had in that ballpark. Is that yeah. the highlight you have? I would say that probably the highlight of my Minute Maid Park career was uh, the three-run homer I get hit against Chris Carpenter, which nobody remembers because it immediately preceded the three-run homer that Albert Pujols hit uh, in game uh, five of the 2005 NLCS. And everybody remembers that as the game that Lidge gave up the three-run homer when we were one strike away from going to the first World Series. And then Eckstein gets a hit, and then Edmonds walks, and then Pujols homers, and we lose the game, which we ended up winning uh, game six in St. Louis. But uh, for sure, the highlight was in that game in the seventh inning 
We have the Astros have never been to a World Series in the history of the franchise. The place is going absolutely bananas. We have we are down by a run in the bottom of the seventh with uh, one out, I think, and there was runners on first and third. And Chris Carpenter, who at that time was maybe I th- he may have won the Cy Young that year, but he was certainly one of the better pitchers in the game, uh, and he had sure. been, he had been dealing, and, and we really hadn't been able to get a whole lot done off of him. And so I have a big opportunity, and I came through with a three-run homer in the Crawford seats. Well, we talked about Berkman. He has hit two lasers off Carpenter tonight. A liner caught in center, a single to right center after drawing a walk his first time up. In the air, left field, it might be. And rounding the bases, you always hear people talk about, well, it felt like I was rounding the bases on air. Well, that that was the one experience of my career where I felt that way, where it was just like I didn't even really? touch the ground. People were, <laughs> you know, it, it was it was it was mayhem. I mean, it was like our dugout was going crazy, the fans were going crazy. I mean, it's the seventh inning. You know, everybody's convinced, hey, we're we're going to the World Series, and it's the first yeah. one in the history of the franchise, and it was just. It was nuts. That that was the that was the highlight for me in, in twenty years of I'll add to that. I think that Minute Maid Park is one of the best ballparks in all of baseball. Uh it's there's not a bad seat in the house. When the crowd is there, it is it is a special place. I completely agree. And I was just going to say, I know Sparky agrees with me too, because one of the joys I think in our jobs is being able to show up at that ballpark on a consistent basis and watch ball games. And you can feel it in that booth when people get going. Lance, we could probably spend another three, four hours on this podcast with you talking about uh, some Astros history and your your exploits in that uniform. But really thank you for uh, coming on and giving us some of your time. And uh, we have all the best to you and your family as we go through this uh, crisis that we're in right now, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we'll all be able to get out to the ballpark at some point this year, and I'm sure I'll see you guys there. Yeah, that's the plan, man. Thanks a lot, Lance. All right. Thanks, Lance. All right, that's it. Like you said, Blummer, we could listen to Lance tell stories for hours. He's always entertaining. I hope you guys uh, got a chance to enjoy that. Uh, Blummer, uh, once again, Lance, uh, he's a star, isn't he? Yeah, he's a star. He's always going to be a star. And I love the fact that he is opening himself up to get in the booth to give some of that knowledge to fans yeah. who are watching these ball games and get a different perspective. But always great to have Lance on. And I love the fact that, as you know, you get the good stories out of him. You get the giggle and the laugh. But you also get uh-huh. the perspective of 2010, which was really interesting for me to be in that clubhouse and watch what was happening unfold to a guy that is so so great to the game and so great to the organization. And it's always great to, to spend time with you too, Bummer. So thank you for joining us uh, here on Astros Radio, the, the Astropod. Uh, it's always great catching up with you and working with you. So. Uh, uh, hope you stay safe, man. Hang in there. Yeah, I'm glad we have this platform to be able to talk. It's always great talking to you too, Sparky. And until we have the ability yeah. to get on the golf course, we'll keep doing this, man. Join us next time on Astropos. Houston, we know these are uncertain and unprecedented times, but we will get through this. We will get through this together. Together. It is important that we all take the necessary steps to ensure safety of our loved ones and our community. You're the best fans in baseball. The best. And we love you. We love you. Baseball will be back. And we cannot wait to see you. Stay safe, Houston. For the H. It's for the H. Okay, picture this. 
It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 